You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fox. So the same Welcome all to this week's Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm David Grubbs, an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. With me this week is Nathan Gilmore, associate professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How goes it there, sir? Oh, doing pretty well. Today's my heavy teaching day this semester, but uh, feeling pretty good about things. I'll also say, even though she might never listen to it, today is my (laughs) wife's birthday, so uh, happy birthday, Mary. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Of course, it'll uh, the, air a week after her birthday or whatever. She's never going to listen. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the other gentleman wishing a happy birthday that will never be heard is Michael Farmer, assistant, uh, Farmer, assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Um, I can't say words today, Michael. How are yeah, you? Yeah, it's a good thing you're hosting, huh? I know, right? Well, I am hosting, which means I get to call the topic, but before I do that, uh, anything that we want to point out on uh, on the network since since last we recorded? Yeah, I think this week uh, there will be an episode of Sectarian Review in which Danny and I talk about REM and U2. Fine. And the interviews from Christian Humanist Profiles keep rolling in, so be sure to subscribe to that feed. Book of Nature did an episode about gene editing. Um, I haven't heard it yet, but it's got Danny on it, so I expect it to be subversive. Wait, Danny Anderson was on their episode about gene splicing? Yeah, I know. Apparently they're also (laughs) network splicing. (laughs) I think that's excellent. Well, our topic for today is the apocryphal Book of Wisdom uh, or deuterocanonical, if you prefer that term. The Book of Apocryphal Wisdom is more like it. <laughs> uh, also called the Wisdom of Solomon um, is, is one of the other names by which it's known. Uh, I, I chose this because uh, I, I read it a while back and uh, was, uh, was surprised by some of the things I found inside of it. And... Uh, found it really interesting and wanted to impose that upon y'all for conversation's sake. So we should get into it. What's this book that we're reading, Gilmore? And what is its own account of itself, and what do scholars say about it? Well, this is a book that uh, talks a great deal about wisdom, so of course the name Solomon got slapped onto it. Uh, It is in Greek, Uh, And the historical man Solomon lived before the Greek language was invented, so it's probably not a composition of Solomon (laughs) originally. Um, I mean, he was really wise, though. (laughs) So much so that he invented a language that wouldn't be spoken for another 200 years. Yeah, I'm going to say no to that one. 
Uh, it is, you know, composed in very stylized Hellenistic Greek, uh, which places it in the era of the great, you know, Greek empires, uh, second century, first century BC, give or take. Uh, it focuses a great deal on Egypt, which some scholars have taken it to, you know, to locate it in Alexandria, which is a great center of Greek learning. Others have just said, I mean, have you read the Old Testament? They talk about Egypt a lot. Um, <laughs> is true. Indeed, indeed. Um, now, the other thing that is, you know, notable about it is that it does tend to talk about uh, Judaism as a rival philosophy to other philosophies that are uh, available in the world. World, pardon me. Uh, doesn't use that term necessarily, uh, but certainly the general parameters are there. So again, we are probably looking at a text that you know is composed in, like I said, I'd, I'd probably place it in the second century BC if I had to place it somewhere tentatively, but I would always place it tentatively. Uh, as far I heard as, first century AD, Nathan. Is that is that a oh, reasonable? Oh, really? Well, I did see one article that you know placed it there largely because of some of the vocabulary. Um, I, I guess it's possible. Again, because the text doesn't really refer to any contemporary regimes, events, place names, things like that. It largely focuses on concepts and then very ancient events. Uh, it's hard to say. So, I mean, if you like first century AD, I'm, I'm happy to go there. David, is there anything else about this that, uh, oh, you asked, you know, how does the book situate mm -hmm. itself? Because it is a book of wisdom, uh, you know, it reads in some senses like Proverbs. Uh, it gives a very uh, allegorized history of the, really, I mean, the, the Pentateuch of the Old Testament. Uh, and, you know, for that reason, you know, you could reasonably say it is an heir to the books of Proverbs, Song of Solomon, so on and so forth, those kind of wisdom kinds of books there in the middle parts of the Old Testament. If, and if I remember right, I looked this up, but I didn't write it down, unfortunately, uh, in editions of the Septuagint that are extant, uh, generally speaking, it appears there in the midst of those wisdom books. So, David, anything else that you hmm. want to add to that? So is it just the uh, just the association with the wisdom books that links it with Solomon? I mean, at, at one point he seems to he seems to speak of himself as um, as one of the as a as a king. Okay, I, and I must have flown right over that. So go ahead and talk a moment about that, David. Well, he he seems to be channeling a lot of that. Uh, seeking of wisdom prayer for wisdom material um that we have in uh in the the historical books account of of young solomon and in uh chapter nine of wisdom uh he's he says that god has uh he's this is a prayer right uh in the prayer he says thou hast chosen me to be a king of thy people and a judge of thy sons and daughters and hast commanded me to build a temple on thy holy mount and an altar in the city of thy dwelling place so he doesn't name names but uh he does he does seem to be uh the the voice in this book does seem to be trying to connect itself to um that voice that's in proverbs the voice we hear, um, I think, in Ecclesiastes, and then the the 
historical material about Solomon we have in the history books. Right, right. And I flew right over that when I was prepping for the episode, David, so thanks for catching that. No worries. Um, I, I, I just find it interesting that it's that it's that kind of a uh, that kind of a gestalt, though. Um, you know that that's you know particular proverbs are attributed to Solomon as is uh, at least as I understand it, usually a uh, um, a, a reading of tradition. They don't they don't explicitly name. Um, same thing with uh, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes drops drops those kinds of hints. Um, it seems, you know, drops some details that seem to connect the voice in Ecclesiastes with Solomon. Um, not to say that uh, that that can't be quibbled with, but the Book of Wisdom seems to seems to be taking um, taking that that same voice to itself. So, so is it pseudop? Would you say it's uh, what's the term? Pseudepigrapha? Is that the? Oh goodness, I've been out of seminary too long. Yeah, I think that's the <laughs> word. Um, yeah, I mean the Greek, the Greek cognates add up. So yeah, we'll call it that. <laughs> okay, all right. A, a, a book written under the name of someone else that it probably couldn't possibly have been written by. Right. We've got a good reason to believe that. Solomon is a long-distant memory when this book comes into its written form. And surely okay. nobody claims that this uh, this book was written in Hebrew and then translated into Greek? Uh, there have been people who have tried to claim that, but in the guild, so to speak, uh, there aren't very many who take that hypothesis seriously. This is pretty clearly a Greek composition. That's what I was going to say. I mean, even I can tell it's Greek, uh, and I don't know nothing. well maybe uh maybe later on you can point out some of those um typically greek things nathan um i don't want this episode uh to get into the whole canonicity debate for one thing it's not long enough um but i do want to consider a tangent off of that larger topic uh athanasius of alexandria in uh, his kind of famous paschal letter where he has a list of, um, of authoritative canonical books, follows it up with another list that he describes like this, Michael. There are other books beside these, not indeed included in the canon, but appointed by the fathers to be read by those who newly join us and who wish for instruction in the word of godliness. Now, the Book of Wisdom is not in his first list of authoritative canon, but it is on that second list. What do you think of Athanasius's categories? Is this helpful for working through, even if we're not avoiding the Catholic-Protestant canon wrangling that probably will emerge over this? That sounds fine to me. The Orthodox included in a list of books called That Which Must Be Read, or Which Is to Be Read. That, mm-hmm. that, that sounds fine to me. I mean, it, it especially for this book, especially if it has the late date I talked about, um, it would be not a Christian text, but it's written perhaps in or very near the Christian era, so it would belong to a canon of Hebrew literature before Hebrew literature really separated from Christian literature. But I mean, I could certainly see how this book would be helpful. I saw very little in it that contradicts the Hebrew Bible in any meaningful way. I, I, I can see how this book would be valuable, uh, and that's leaving aside 
whether what canon it should belong to or anything like that. There's no reason not to read this. Treating it as uh, a helpful a, a a helpful teacher's meditation on um, on themes that we also see in the canonical books, maybe something like that. Yeah, at the very least, right? Cool. I mean, there's nothing there's nothing super weird in it the way there is in Bell and the Dragon, you know, some of the other <laughs> some of the other deuterocanonical books. So I, I mean, Tobit. I, I don't know that I've read Tobit, but it it has instructions for warding off demons with smelly fish. Yeah, good to know. So that that's also helpful in its way. <laughs> Practical. Well, one of the big reasons that the Book of Wisdom fascinates me, and you've kind of you you kind of said this, Michael, is the way that it seems to be sitting in this place in the Jewish culture between um, between the Hebrew scriptures before the Christian scriptures. Um, as I'm reading it, it's it seems as if there's theological language and assumptions that kind of stretch in both directions to me. Uh, so Nathan, yes. um, let's look at chapter two in which the wicked rationalize their choices and the way they've treated the righteous. Um, what familiar scriptural threads do you see twined into here from the old and if you're an early Christian reading it, pointing towards the new? What's fascinating about chapter two is it is a long uh, poetic passage. It's definitely got some parallelism working. Uh, And it is a poem against the unrighteous. This is a genre that should be familiar to us from a lot of the Psalms, you know, certain passages in the Proverbs, uh, some prophetic oracles. And the overall upshot of these is that the ungodly are one way or the wicked are one way and the righteous are another way. What's interesting about the ones in the Hebrew Bible, and I call it that because this is a Greek book, so we don't have to confuse, you know, which Old Testament canon we're working with. But in the Hebrew text, generally speaking, although there are a couple of marginal cases, these diatribes against the wicked tend to be very ethical in their focus. Uh, even the one that famously says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. That's not a metaphysical claim if you read past verse 1, uh, but this is you know, a claim about the consequences of bad action. Uh, If I oppress my weak neighbor, if I do what is wrong, so on and so forth, there will be no one to punish me. Wisdom of Solomon chapter 2 takes it in a different direction because we get a lot more rationalization of that bad behavior. Uh, The wicked are still treading down the weak. They are still doing violence to the righteous. Uh, They are still you know, being wicked. But what we get in addition to that is a strong sense that these wicked people are materialists in a very straightforward sense. Uh, And in fact, to have a sense that the righteous will not associate them, not only because of the bad things they do, but also because uh, of their philosophical beliefs. And so, you know, we get passages like, Uh, Our name will be forgotten in time and no one will remember our works. Our life will pass away like the traces of a cloud and be scattered like mist that is chased by the rays of the sun and overcome by the heat. Our allotted time is the passing of a shadow and there is no return from our death. 
because it is sealed up and no one turns back. And, you know, up to that point, uh, you could be forgiven if you saw those verses in isolation as a gloss on, you know, the Oracle of Hope from Isaiah 40. You know, comfort, comfort my people, you know, speak to them in a gentle voice. What should I say to them? Say to them, all men are grass. Well, there, you know, the word of comfort is this supposedly and seemingly immortal Babylonian empire is coming to an end soon. Well, here, the transience of human existence is a reason not to take any ethical uh, injunctions or any ethical obligations seriously. We're going to die anyway, so why worry about such things? And it goes on like that for a good 21 verses before finally... uh, it starts talking about the wicked in the third person. And we get the statement that uh, God created us for incorruption and made us in the image of his own eternity. Now you get kind of echoes of that in Ecclesiastes. You know, he has, Mm -hmm. you know, set before or no, he has set their hearts on immortality, but not allowed them to see it. Or I'm paraphrasing Ecclesiastes very badly here. But here, I mean, it seems linked up with, uh, a more definite opposition to that materialism. So at the very least, there is implied, you know, this very Hellenistic notion of the soul that persists after the death of the body. Uh, I bring that up because, you know, as many of our listeners probably heard when they took their intro to religion course or their intro to Bible course, if they went to that sort of a college, or maybe even they've heard it in a uh, theological podcast here or there, The Hebrew Bible, which is to say those books that are written in Hebrew, have a very understated and sometimes completely absent notion of an afterlife that is separate from the body. Here in Wisdom of Solomon, I mean, it's it's a lot more prominent. So, I mean, that's the big thing that I see uh, joining the two. I mean, as we roll on in the book, we're going to talk about some other things, you know, some universalizing tendencies in the ways that it tells Israel's story. Uh, but that's really, I mean, the big transitional uh, material that I see here in chapter two. Nathan, do you think that the material you were quoting earlier about the shortness of life and all, do you think that's a direct response to Epicureanism? Oh, that's entirely possible. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that, but I mean, now that you bring it up, I think it's possible. Um I mean, now, that's now not the thing what is, the Epicureans, Epicureans were known for being say. pretty. Yeah, 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 and the Epicureans were known for being fairly moral. Right. So but, it would but be hard to say that. Was a, apparently, it was a pretty standard attack on them because Epicurus mentions it himself in the letter to Minosius. Okay, then yeah, I'd say that's definitely possible. Interesting. I, trying to figure out where. Um, it makes sense in Alexandria, but I want to say um, there are also, uh, I mean, in some of the various Hellenistic cities um, that were near uh, near Jerusalem, like the 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 ten the ten cities that were kind of towards the east, the Penta- Pentapolis, Decapolis, Decapolis, Deca Deca Penta. No, Penta would be five, so Decapolis would be ten. Um, I want to say that there were some some centers of Greek learning there. Oh, certainly. I, I mean, there in the, you know, generally speaking, the old Seleucid Empire definitely had those Hellenistic cities. So that's not a stretch to imagine that Epicureans were wandering about in that region. 
cool. I was also interested in the way that the the second chapter seems to suggest that God doesn't bring death into the world, that that death is the product of the devil. Mm-hmm. I don't know that if was... I have anything to say beyond that. I mean that that's oh, okay. not inconsistent. <laughs> that's not inconsistent with Genesis, but it also is not inconsistent with Gnosticism. <laughs> um I, I found that but I found that bit really interesting because the uh twenty verse twenty four of chapter two, uh death comes by the envy of the devil. Um they follow him that are of his side. Um you know, in the you know, in Genesis we have the story of the man and the woman tempted and they eat of the fruit and that in that day they will die and there's the serpent and then when you get into um when you get into the New Testament, there's this this devil there who's mankind's enemy, much more emphatically so than the, the Satan of the old. And in Revelation he's called the old serpent who was a murderer from the beginning and a liar. And you're like, okay, who's who's connecting those dots? Um I don't know, this wisdom guy looks like he's connecting those dots. I wish he would say more. <laughs> well, right, that might right. be enough reason to keep it in the Bible. <laughs> to provide the middle term? Um, I, I wonder, too, at the end of the chapter, he's he talks about it's the wicked talking about the righteous. And let, verse 17, let us see then if his words be true. Let us prove what shall happen to him, and we shall know what his end shall be. For if he be the true son of God, he will defend him and will deliver him from the hands of his enemies. Let us examine him by outrages and tortures, that we may know his meekness and try his patience. Let us condemn him to a most shameful death, for there shall be respect had unto him by his words. These things they thought and were deceived. Um... I mean, it sounds like some of the things that the wicked say in uh, in the Psalms, you know, some of the Psalms of David talk about people plotting against him. Um, it also sounds like Satan telling Jesus to jump off the temple. Yeah, it really does. It really does. <laughs> so, yeah. Really, really interesting. Um and you can see how those early Christian readers would read this and, I mean, immediately see, you know, this as, you know, typological, uh, as, right, you know, right. foreshadowing the crucifixion narrative as well as the temptation in the wilderness. Yeah, uh, I, 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 could, I could see reading this book as a, as a first century Christian and getting very excited. Um. Chapters six through eight. Speaking of the and actually, real quick, David, another thought yeah. just occurred to me. I mean, this also yeah. could be a point of connection for the utterly mysterious saying of Paul that Christ was crucified in accordance to the scriptures. I mean, mm. if you look for you know something in the Hebrew text that says that directly, it is hard to find. Uh, mm. But if he did have, among other texts, wisdom of Solomon in mind, that actually would make a fair bit of sense. Hmm. And he would have, right? Paul Paul would have used the Septuagint? Yeah, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he quotes from it when he quotes the Old Testament. So not to get 
not to return us to the the Canada discussion, but I, I this mm-hmm. question has always bothered me. If if Paul and Jesus presumably used the Septuagint, where do we get off throwing it out? Where do we get out throwing the deutero canonical books out? Um, that's that's the canon episode. Yeah, it's 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 too have. much. For <laughs> that 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 has yeah. bothered me since since I found out about the Septuagint. Yeah, um, I think though, um, one one term that we, you know, if I was going to take Athanasius's lead, um, what if such what if books such as Wisdom were accessible and maybe Paul read them, but when he read them, he read them as um, a a a pious near contemporary wise Jew um, reading the scriptures well in ways that helped illumine his own reading of the scriptures um, I, I don't know that uh, that there's a in uh, oh I think it's I think Kevin Van Hooser does this this is like the second week I've had to make Van Hooser moves um in which he talks about the uh, the idea of of authority in the church, um, saying that yes, the canon, um, the the scripture has what he calls magisterial authority, um, but that the church itself and the teachers within the church have a a properly um, a proper ministerial authority, um, you know that should be should be respected and. Uh, and highly regarded, so that perhaps um, perhaps Paul might look at a book at, like like Wisdom and see it as as the min- as someone ministering the word, so to speak. I don't know. We just don't have a lot to go on, do we? No, I suppose we don't. Six to eight. Uh, you brought up. Uh, I think you, you used the word typological, Nathan. Um, do do and, I get my Calvinist point? Huh? Do I get yeah, my yes. Calvin point? <laughs> well, your Calvin point and your medieval exegesis point. There um, you go. Uh, chapter six to eight is a long meditation in praise of wisdom. Uh, so, Michael, how are these chapters developing some familiar themes in Proverbs, but? If I was an early Christian armed with John 1 and Colossians 1, what would I get excited about here? Well, I think you'd get excited over this notion that wisdom is the logos. Um, in the very first chapter, says, That which holds all things together knows what is said. And it's unclear, at least in my translation, I use the NRSV, it's unclear whether that's talking about God or about wisdom. But I think that also works perfectly well with John 1 and Colossians 1. Here in chapter 8, it says wisdom is the active cause of all things, which which also sounds very Logos to me. So I, I think those are the things they get excited about. It connects back to Proverbs just in the general emphasis on wisdom as kind of the first virtue. Um, it, it brings peace of mind, it says. It, it, you have to have it in order to be just, especially if you're powerful. It protects you from envy. It begets all these other good things, health and beauty and wealth, but it only does them, it says in 
chapter seven. It only does them if you approach with pure motives. So he he talks about how once he became wise, he got health and beauty and wealth, but he didn't know those things were coming. Um, wisdom is steady, whereas all these other philosophies, the Epicureanism or whatever, all all of them. Uh, kind of come and go. They don't really give you any peace of mind. They don't really give you any security. And ultimately, wisdom is what the wise man will pass on from himself. It's his legacy. Um, I, I found these three chapters to be the most interesting part of the book. I don't know about you guys. What about you, Nathan? Yeah, I mean, especially there in chapter uh, six that Michael was was quoting from before. I mean, there are definitely some passages that, like John one, are redrawing, even if in poetic ways, uh, what we think of as you know the strong boundary line between creation and creator. Right? I mean, this is an all pervasive thing. It's a reflection of God. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's a an image of God. I mean, which of course is language that, you know, describes Jesus in passages of the new Testament. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I can definitely see that this is, uh, one of those bridges between, you know, uh, old Testament and new Testament, like we talked about before. One interesting thing as well at the end of chapter six is that, you know, there's an introduction of beauty here, uh, that I, I don't know. I mean, I, I should know this. I did a, a master's degree in Old Testament, but I mean, the notion of beauty in the Hebrew text isn't something that immediately comes to my mind. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas here, I mean, you know, uh, wisdom is, verse 29, more beautiful than the sun, excels every constellation in the stars. Compared with the light, she is found to be superior, for it is succeeded by the night, but against wisdom, evil does not prevail. So there's this notion that, you know, there is a soul compelling character to wisdom in addition mm. to all of the metaphysical predicates. Yeah. Um, I'm using the Douay Reims, Douay Rhymes. It's the the English translation of the Vulgate. Yeah. Um Yeah, chapter uh chapter seven and you and you pointed at you you all pointed at these. Um she wisdom uh, is a vapor of the power of God, a certain pure emanation of the glory of the Almighty God. She is the brightness of eternal light, the unspotted mirror of God's majesty, the image of his goodness. Um, yeah, I apologize. I was reading from <laughs> chapter 7 earlier, not 6. Yeah, well, I, uh, yeah, I heard what you meant. Um, <laughs> you know, and then uh, when uh, I didn't, uh, this is this is six six to eight is the is what I specified, but if you pick up in ten and I don't want to spoil anything, but um, for for you Nathan, but but picking up in ten, it is uh it is wisdom who is, um, preserving fallen Adam. Wisdom is preserving humanity through the flood. Um, wisdom is later the one who leads uh, leads Israel through the Red Sea. Um, wisdom is the one who is the f- the the f- the fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. Um, yeah. <laughs> right, and I mean I I'm I'm having uh, flashbacks here, David, to the uh, Richard Hayes versus Daniel Kirk battle that played out on profiles about these questions. 
But at the very least, you have to say here that wisdom is doing the things that God does in these Mm -hmm. passages. Right. It's unclear which one it's talking about. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, I, 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 I'm not. It doesn't feel quite as weird to me now as as as, as it did the first time I heard it. But um, the first time uh, Proverbs is it is it Proverbs eight? Is the it the one, one where wisdom is the one that uh, is the craftsman of all things created? Yes, and yep. re- you know rejoices before God, and and um, all all the rest of those that that wisdom chapter, you know when the fathers um, read that as a a Christological text. The first time I heard that uh, someone say that, I thought that's really weird. Why would you do that? Um, if I was going back to read Proverbs eight, having also been exposed to a a commentary and expansion on Proverbs eight, like like this, um, I, I I can I can much I can much more strongly see how that how that move would have been made. Um, anything else we want to say about wisdom? Wisdom is the name of the book. Well, I've I've got a lot to say, but it's about the. Uh history of wisdom that you're going to ask me about next so (laughs) okay well let's do that uh beginning in chapter 10 uh the author rehearses god's relationship with humanity and continues this for the rest of the book um leaving aside the excursus on idolatry for the moment uh how does the author present god's wisdom justice and his compassion in dealing with his people and dealing with those who aren't his people well, first of all, a couple fascinating formal elements of this. First of all, uh, this is a retelling of biblical history that really doesn't use a whole lot of names. Uh, so we get, you know, phrases like the first man or the one who saw God in the fire or so on and so forth. Uh, you know, why stylistically this poetry leaves out those names, I'm not sure. I'm not going to speculate about, you know, any kind of missionary impulse or anything like that, but it is interesting formally. The other interesting formal element is that it very explicitly uh, takes the story of the ten plagues uh, and it lays them out as an antithesis to the story of Israel in and through and on the other side of the Exodus. So, you know, the antitheses, I mean, they run all the way through this section, you know, uh, God turns the Nile to blood, so curses Egypt with water, but it makes, but God, but wisdom, you know, they kind of get interchanged, makes water emerge from a rock. Uh, You know, the Egyptians are punished with plagues of animals like gnats and so on and so forth. And the Israelites are blessed with quail, although it does stop to say, although that didn't turn out so well, but don't think about it too much. (laughs) Um, You know, the weather plagues Egypt with the, you know, the storm and the hail and fire from the sky, whereas Israel has manna that comes from the sky. Israel, or Egypt, pardon me, gets a plague of darkness. Israel gets a pillar of fire. The firstborn of Egypt are stricken down. The firstborn of Israel are passed over. The Red Sea crashes down on Egypt and smashes its army. The Red Sea parts to open up for Israel. So, what we get is this very stylized telling 
uh, of the Exodus. You know, uh, these antitheses are certainly implicit in the Exodus narrative, uh, but by no means does it make nearly as much effort, if you will, poetically, uh, to break them down this way, to set them in opposition. And the picture that emerges uh, is, again, an heir of the old wisdom traditions of Proverbs especially, but also the wisdom Psalms, namely saying that those who are turned towards God and those who practice righteousness, uh, those who do what is good in the world, they are the heirs of God's blessing, whereas those who do wickedness in the world uh, you know, reap the wrath of God in various forms. And of course, it, it's not too far from that to get to, you know, something more explicitly theological in Deuteronomy, where it's not just that good things happen to the righteous and bad things happen to the wicked, but God is the agent that does those things. And really, I, I see the wisdom of Solomon here as sort of pulling both of those traditions together and turning it into, you know, a a very brief, uh, but very powerful and very poetically pleasing uh, version of that history. Now, the other thing that, you know, is, is notable here, uh, kind of in the end run of the book, you know, you can think of this book in, in three big divisions. It's the, you know, the praise of wisdom in the beginning and the nature of wisdom in the middle, and then the history of wisdom in the third part, uh, is that once again, as we look at each of these episodes, uh, it's always told for the sake of, you know, communicating these wisdom lessons, these moral lessons. Uh, it's not simply that these things happen to the Egyptians, but these things happen to the Egyptians, so therefore you should not be wicked as the Egyptians were wicked. So it, it makes it a definite part of the wisdom tradition rather than merely a, you know, psalm of rejoicing for the salvation of Israel, as you see in the Hebrew text. Uh, but, you know, by combining it with that moral valence, uh, you know, it, yeah, I mean, it's, it's wisdom. That's why they call it wisdom. Nice. Anything in this section that, that you found, uh, you found interesting, Michael? Yeah, I'm interested in the way that wickedness is bound up with cowardice and with bad reason. In yeah. in chapter 17, it says, Fear is nothing but a giving up of the helps that come from reason. And that's very interesting because, I mean, reason is connected with wisdom in the, in the Hebrew Bible, I think, but not as strongly as it is here. And again, that's I think you see that Greek influence here, that to be wise is to reason correctly. And one of the reasons people are wicked is that they're not reasoning correctly. So it seems like virtue is wisdom is reason in a way that uh maybe we don't see in the rest of the hebrew bible hmm. so does the, that mean that dune is right when it says that fear is the mind killer uh i i think uh actually fear is the result <laughs> of killing your mind uh. the other thing i thought was interesting is the treatment of covenant here i mean when you have this long history of israel covenant is involved you see it again and again in the prophets but uh, here in chapter 15, I'm um, 15 too. Now we know now that our translations have different versifications, but mine, uh, mine says, for even if we sin, we are yours, knowing your power, but we will not sin because we know that you acknowledge us as yours. So mm. it's interesting that the covenant is not broken by their sin, and yet the covenant demands 
that they don't sin. Yeah, the treatment of covenant in this is super interesting to me. Well, it says early on that the, the wicked make a covenant with death. Hmm. Which, as we know, comes from the devil. And and it says that that those who those who follow him are his people. That's interesting. Well, I'm interested in the early Christian apologists. So, chapter thirteen to fifteen was exciting to me. So, Michael, what leads humans to idolatry? And what connections do you find between this polemic and what you see in the Hebrew Scripture and um, Christian writers that you're familiar with as well? Okay, so I am not interested in the early Christian apologists, so I'm going to give you the (laughs) idolatry stuff, and you can make the connection that you're interested in making, because I'm not going to be able to make it. People are brought to idols in a search for God, which is very interesting because the author says that on one level you can't blame them um, because Mm. God is hard to find and they get distracted when they're searching for him. They get distracted in particular by beauty and and because God is the most beautiful thing, they should be going to him, but instead they get sidetracked by these lesser beauty. And But by the way, I mean, um, he does end up blaming them. He says at first on one level you can't blame them. Oh, but you must blame them. Um. He really makes fun of idolaters in 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 this book, and that's that's fun to read. It, it reminds me a little bit of uh, is it is it Isaiah where he talks about the the guy praying to idols that don't have they have eyes but they can't see and they have ears but can't hear. I think that's Isaiah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah, that's Isaiah. I want to say forty one or forty two. Mm-hmm. Here here you have a guy very carefully creating an idol. He knows he's the one creating it. He It says he hangs it on the wall, and he's very careful to hang it on the wall in such a way that it won't fall down. When, by the way, if it were real, it wouldn't have to worry about falling down because it'd take care of itself. And then he, he says all these prayers to something that deep down he knows has no possible power to answer them and and that's interesting to me it goes back to the idea that wickedness is a form of bad reason our idolater here is not reasoning terribly well he should he should know better but he doesn't and then when the idols fail the author says that the idolater ought to look to god but still doesn't do it so again his reason isn't working mm-hmm. it's reminiscent michael of those passages in plato's dialogues where he you know, in Republic famously excises, you know, certain parts of Homer, but in other dialogues talks about how people must be mistaken about the gods because these things they say about them are unreasonable. Yeah, that that, that connection makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. The uh the references to them, you know, making making idols even of uh even of beasts and things like that, um that's uh in, in some of the the early Christian apologists, um, they they turn that specifically against the animal-headed deities of Egypt. Yeah, which I think they're doing mm-hmm. here too, because they say it's it's not just they're making I- idols out of animals; it's the worst animals. Yeah, <laughs> they're making up animals. Um, another another element uh, that I I found really interesting and and gets picked up later. Um, verse in, in uh, chapter 14 it talks about 
a a father whose son has died carving an image of his dead son um or a a king who has uh uh has servants or people who are geographically far from him carving his image and so directing their um their fealty to him to the image um kind of taking these uh, these images ser serving as surrogates for human relationships and then saying, and it's easy to see how idolatry developed out of that kind of thing. It's like um, social media. <laughs> yeah. Um, or, or like the opening chapters of City of God. I'll admit that's the first thing I thought of was, oh my gosh, Augustine was just straight pulling this out of Wisdom of Solomon. Well, I mean, I, I, I think this might have been like a whole developed Jewish apologetic in the Hellenistic world, um, you know, and I, I, I would not be surprised to find that lurking underneath people like Justin and Tertullian uh, and Augustine is just the heir of those guys, um, that lurking underneath them is this is this other layer of of Jewish polemic against idolatry, whose arguments Christians saw as still working perfectly fine. Right. And it's interesting. I mean, that word uh, reasoning or argument that you just used, I mean, that's the same word logismu that we mm. were talking about earlier in chapter 12. I've been clicking around in the Greek text and trying to find it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it is that word for the exchange of speeches of logoi. So, you know, yeah. it, it's, it's definitely, again, that blending of, you know, the strong emphasis on dialectic and conversation in the Greek tradition with, you know, the fear of God in the wisdom tradition. Yeah. Really, really interesting stuff to me. Um, seeing how this, uh, if, if we, if we grant a Hellenistic author, Hellenistic context for this, um, I think it's really interesting to see this, this air of the prophets, um, taking, the you know, threads trajectories from their polemic and then um uh developing them out in ways uh, possibly even supplemented with ideas from philosophies that are not themselves hebrew um but developing out these arguments in ways that suit um the cultural context he's in that's probably the stuff that excited me most as i was reading through this cuz um, I, I read it first while I was working uh, on my dissertation, which had a lot of kind of patristic polemics against idolatry um, as, as part of the material I was working through. And then I read the Book of Wisdom and was like, holy crap. <laughs> right, right. It also makes me curious. I mean, you know, obviously the book is purporting to be a work of Solomon, you know, who mm -hmm. was alive in a period where these Egyptian, you know, animal-headed deities are definitely you know live and you know threatening in the world i mean david you you've done more reading this period than i have i mean to what extent have egyptian books by this time become so hellenized that they don't take those animal gods seriously i mean do they still regard them as gods in the same way that you know a a second dynasty you know pharaoh would have considered them gods right um, I'm, I'm going to be speaking way out of my specialization, but, um, isn't that what we do on the show? Yeah, we do. So I'm, so, I, so I'm gonna, uh, the, the Ptolemies, 
um, adopted a lot of the the tropes and the trappings of of ancient Egyptian art. Um, they adopted they adopted Egyptian names. Um, they built themselves tombs in an Egyptian style. You know the degree to which they were just LARPing or or actually attempting to adopt the culture. Uh, you know maybe uh, is, is is that's a, that's a line I wouldn't know where to draw. But one of the things that happens um, is a a kind of wholesale amalgam of Egyptian religion and Greek religion, and then when the Romans come in, Roman religion, um, finding equivalences between these Egyptian gods and then the gods that um, the Greeks know and the Romans know, and and seeing, um, well, Hermes is Mercury, but he's also uh, he's also uh, Thoth or Toth, the uh, the ibis-headed god of wisdom and scribe scribal things in um, the Egyptian religion or you know your religion has a sun god well ours does too and we'll just put them all together um, so I, I, I don't know um, I, I, I don't know that the the Egyptian temples in which they still had sacred animals I don't know how long that tradition was carried on into into the Hellenistic era um, but certainly the 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 art the the depictions of the Egyptian gods as animal-headed was something that 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 continued because they'd found ways to kind of uh, integrate that synthesize um, that religion and that art in with religious notions they that the Greeks brought with them. Right, and I guess the reason I'm I'm curious is that you know I mean if you read some of Aristotle's treatises I mean they are functionally monotheistic. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, Plato certainly drifts into monotheism at times. The Stoics were pantheists, which is, you know, more like monotheism than it is like polytheism. So I, I wondered the extent to which, you know, this polemic is something where, you know, the author is playing Solomon and, you know, being a bit historicist before they had that word. And mm -hmm. to what extent, you know, this is a real live threat there in the, you know, Second Temple period. I don't really know. Um, I, 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 I really don't know. It, it, it could also be kind of uh, the continued reverberations of uh, the Maccabean revolt. Yeah, and, I can see that. And, can see and, that. That, and that attempt to impose um, a, a Greek paganism um, by force on the Jewish people. Right, um, right. Yeah, because, I mean, we talked about Isaiah 41 earlier. I mean, the Babylonians, they had gods. I mean, that, yeah. <laughs> that, that was no joke. But, I mean, by the time you get to whenever Wisdom of Solomon has been written, you know, yeah. we've had generations of tragedies and Plato and Aristotle and the Stoics, and it's a lot mm -hmm. more uh, murky water. Well, I mean, you, you have something like uh, Cicero's On the Nature of the Gods where... Um, they're 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 really arguing. About, uh, everyone in that dialogue is pretty much in agreement that there are gods, um, but it's it's what sort of things are they, and right, right. how do how does our traditional religion sync up with the reality of what the gods are? 
because no one who's in that conversation seems to think that the that the myths they've inherited are telling them literal things that that were done by um, the sorts of beings that those myths depict. Right. So, I mean, depending on what date you prefer for Wisdom of Solomon listeners, that could be a few generations before Wisdom of Solomon, or it could be a few generations after, but it's in the same ballpark. Well, and, and even then, we have, to, we have to consider whether or not, to the Jewish monotheist, all of those Greek attempts to finesse their traditional religion would matter. Right. Because <laughs> they still got statues. True enough. They're still falling athwart the second commandment. So, yeah. Interesting stuff. Ironic that he's choosing the voice of Solomon, the guy who's like actually, you know, hiring contractors to build Egyptian, uh, Egyptian shrines for his Egyptian wife. Presumably it's young Solomon he's impersonating. <laughs> right. or, or it could be old Solomon who just had a fight with his Egyptian wife. <laughs> Which one? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, touche, I sir. Touche. <laughs> I always thought your idols were goofy. <laughs> well, I've steered us towards topics that interest me. Uh, but what else would uh, you gentlemen like to point out in this book? How about you, Nathan? Mine is more of a, a big picture question. And uh, honestly, I, I've been kind of rolling it around in my head. And listeners, if you listen to Christian Humanist Profiles, you'll hear some of this come out uh, when I talk to David Bentley Hart about his New Testament translation. But the more time I spend, especially with Wisdom of Solomon, but with other uh, deuterocanonical books and Second Temple Jewish books and, you know, Philo of Alexandria and so on and so forth, the more uncomfortable I get with the strong and I think too easy separation that biblical theologians and biblical studies folks make between so-called Greek thought and so-called Jewish thought. I mean, you know, this book uh, is as Jewish as you could imagine, and it's also doing things that are recognizably philosophical. Uh, Mm. So, I mean, you know, the, at the very least, I want to say that, you know, that strong division is not a hermetic seal uh, and that we do well to think about cultural cross-pollination a lot more than sometimes we're inclined to do. So uh, honestly, beyond that, I'm still rolling it around in my head. So I think I'll cut my word off there. Mm. That's also a point that um, James Pennington brings up in, in his, his book on Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is uh, how how thoroughly Hellenized um, even the very orthodox and traditional Jews of the first century would have been. Anyways, Michael, two Platonic moments. There's probably more, but these are the two I noticed. Number one, um, chapter eight, verse seven, says uh, tells us that wisdom teaches us self-control, prudence, justice, and courage. If that sounds familiar to you, that is because in the Republic, Socrates is looking for wisdom, courage, moderation, and justice. Pretty close (laughs) if you combine self-control and prudence and call it moderation. Same four virtues. The other one is uh, in the next chapter, chapter 9, verse 15. It says, A perishable body weighs down the soul, and this earthly tent burdens the thoughtful mind. 
that's one of the few points in this in this book where it felt more Greek than Jewish to me. That sounds very Platonic and not terribly Hebrew. Am I wrong, Nathan? Well, that's the thing. I mean, that's that's just what I'm wrestling with. It's like, okay, <laughs> am I going to tell this book to be more Jewish? Yeah. <laughs> Answer is no, I'm not. <laughs> well, it, it it doesn't it doesn't necessarily feel like the anthropology of the Hebrew scriptures. Right. That's what I'm saying. Oh, not by any means. Yeah. Yeah. That, mm-hmm. I, I, I feel that, I feel that Plato influence here. Oh, I mean, it's straight out of the Phaedo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Really, really interesting. Well, this has been fun, gentlemen. Uh, but what do we got going on next week? Uh, I'm going to make you super uncomfortable, David, because we're going to talk about Miles Davis's seminal kind of blue album. Oh my. And and what 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 genre is this? It's jazz. Ah. Well, that'll be really exciting. You excited, Nathan? I'm excited. Sweet deal. Well, dear listeners, uh until then, you can if you have any comments on this episode, you can post them uh on the show notes for this episode on our blog. You can also send us a message on Facebook. You can post on our Facebook wall. You can email us to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. There's just all kinds of ways you can get in touch with us. In the meanwhile, the Christian Humanist podcast is a show on the Christian Humanist radio network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and our editor is... Ellen Peterson. That was the name that was on the tip of my tongue, Ellen Peterson. And then I questioned myself, but I'm almost there. I'm almost there. Well, I wish you all grand weeks on behalf of Michael Farmer and Nathan Gilmore. And let your sin be strong, but let your faith be stronger.